This is Disaster Tales. Today is Lindsay Wilson, who you may remember from our big Waco episode, multi. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Thanks so much for doing this. No, no problem at all. I was glad I was able to. My schedule's been really crazy lately, so. Imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So today we're going to talk about Kristallnacht, which is a German word that means broken glass or broke. Or, I'm sorry. It's a. It's a German word that means night of crystals or night of broken glass. And it was a movement against the Jewish people in Germany. It was the very first pogrom that they had there. And the victims preferred that we call it the first pogrom or the November pogrom. So, right. And, and in American schools, we don't really, be, it's mentioned, but we don't really go into it. So this will be a learning experience for me. Yeah. <laughs> so as as with all things that are really, really bad, it started in America. Yep. <laughs> I did see that. <laughs> did you wanna work did you wanna talk about that real quick? Um, yeah, I mean we we can discuss it. Like, um oh, I know a lot of countries right now they're having a lot of anti Muslim sentiment too, and I know that kind of started over here with the uh, 9/11, and it kind of carried over because if we because of the war in the Middle East, they've had a lot of uh, refugees. So, like that's the more recent example that I know of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and there's, there's some of this going on in African countries as well. There's uh-huh. race-based um, mass murder. Is uh-huh. so it's genocide. But there's a there's a science or pseudoscience called eugenics. And it, uh, yeah. it started in the United States with a man whose name was Sir Francis Galton. In 1883, he first used that word to describe scientifically the biological improvement of genes in the human race and the concept of being well-born, quotation mark, quotation mark. Yeah. He had studied the upper classes of Britain and arrived at the conclusion that their social positions could be attributed to the superior genetic makeup. Wait, like, um, my ma- my major is in psychology, and I remember we discussed eugenics because uh, with our history of psychology, um, I forget the term for it, but it's where they, they read the bumps on the head. Um, a for, lot of that was based in eugenics. Right, phrenology. Yeah, phrenology, because, like, they would, they would look at a white male and be like, this is, like, the perfect skull, and then, like, they would be like, well, like, on a black male... You have all these, like, enlarged areas and shrunken areas, and this is, you know, it's basically, like, because of their genetics, their inferior kind of thing. Right, yeah, that's that was the theory. Um, uh-huh. And it entailed, if you were going to actually use eugenics, it involved selective breeding, like you breed for good or bad traits in dogs and horses. Yeah. Uh, U.S. eugenicists. They tended to believe the superior races were the Nordic, Germanic, and Anglo-Saxon white, white people. Uh-huh. Um, it also entailed enforcing strict immigration standards so those people couldn't get into our country. 
Right. Also, forcible sterilization of poor, disabled, and immoral people. Right. Like, I, I remember also um, in our history of, of psychology classes that we did, um, a lot of sanatoriums, they would immediately sterilize anybody that was, like, mentally deficient. Right. According to them, or, like, women with severe mental illness, they would sterilize them as well. Yeah. Because they supposedly, because they didn't want to pass on the genes. But I yes. think a lot of that just had to do with control of women. Because well, it's multifaceted, but it's all rooted in eugenics, basically. That's right. Well, there was a time when women were, anytime a woman wasn't calm and, you know, pliant, they would call her hysterical, and she would get medical yes. treatments for that. Yes. And yes. including um, a vibrator. So yes. that it would calm her down. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for, basically forced masturbation, which was a problem in and of itself, but, you know. <laughs> right. But, you know, and then if they were really out of it, then they'd get a lobotomy. So then they'd be very compliant. Yeah, that's, that's very true. <laughs> yeah, and that, and it, it, it happened to women around that same time. Oh, I just popped down all the way down to the aftermath. I don't want to do that. <laughs> the other thing that they had was anti Miscegenation laws. I had to work on that one. Miscegenation yeah, laws. Yeah. Which is the interracial marriage and reproduction laws. And because of this, those theory, actually, those actually didn't, those actually didn't go away until like what the civil rights era. So we've had those for a long time. Yes. So. So there was some there were some places that passed laws here in the United States about that. In Oklahoma in 1908, they banned marriage between a person of African descent and any person not of African descent. And in that, <laughs> yeah. so you know those are the genes they didn't want in the race apparently. Uh, Louisiana in 1920 banned marriage between Native Americans and African Americans and concubinage as well. In Maryland, they banned marriages between black people and Filipinos. That's okay. That's specific, <laughs> isn't it? Yeah. Very. I'm kind of curious on that one. <laughs> and while these, these kind of laws are generally regarded as, you know, from the South, the Southern United States, um, uh, most of the Western and Plains states also enacted them. So, right. So it was pretty much all over the country except for New England, apparently. Okay. And in in 1948, there was a there was a, a lawsuit, Perez versus Sharp, in the California Supreme Court, that the court decided to allow marriage between people of different races. Right. And then nationally, that happened in Loving versus Virginia in 1961, landmark civil rights case where the entire country said, "You." You can marry anybody you want to, basically, any race that you want to. And can we can we talk about the irony of the name Loving? Because yes. I remember learning about this in school, and I was like, that's like the perfect last name to have for this case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I believe they just made a movie about that a few years back. They did. Um, I actually haven't seen it, but I have heard of it, and now I'm going to have to look for it and watch it. So. <laughs> that's right. So, yeah, they so they ruled that laws banning interracial marriages violated the equal protection and due process clauses of the 14th Amendment. And yeah, and that's, I mean, that's 
1961 like that. That's within my living grandparents' lifetime. Within my you know? lifetime. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and in, when it was 2015, when another case came to the Supreme Court, Oberfell versus Hodges, on June 26, 2015, the Supreme Court held a 5-4 decision that the 14th Amendment requires all states to grant same-sex marriages and recognize same-sex marriages, same-sex marriages from other states. Right, and even though I mean we've had like that really famous case where that one lady refused to give a marriage license, like there's still people that are fighting that. But I mean, honestly, it's it's going to go the way that it did back in 1991. You know, it's just going to be it's going to be seen as disgusting one of these days that people would even bother to fight that. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it takes it takes uh, it takes society a while to come around, but just just so that we know that the eugenics program that Hitler instigated in Germany during the Second World War started in the United States. Right, with with these roots here that we kind of had. That's right. Like um, germ warfare also started in the United States with giving contaminated things to indigenous people so that they could get smallpox. Yep. <laughs> the, the 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 famous smallpox blankets. Yes, which oh. which I've heard actually didn't happen, but we did bring yeah. smallpox and it ravaged that community because oh for sure they were never mm-hmm. supposed to before. And it, and it's not. I mean, and honestly, like we we actually propagated it because we knew we would put people together, like contaminate you know sick people with non sick people, and we didn't care. We were like, well, if it kills them, it kills them, you know. So, it, I mean, to be honest, we didn't exactly try to stop it either. No, no. Well, and I do remember this. I might be able to uh, give the United States some cover here because I do remember reading at one point that during one of the plague epidemics in Europe, that somebody uh-huh. was using a catapult to catapult dead bodies of plague victims over a wall into a city. Wow, Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, but that I do remember reading that somewhere. So. That wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> you know. Oh, and an interesting if you're really into um, early uh, term wars, how pandemics have shaped American history. Mm-hmm. There's this amazing book called Pox Americana, and it's all about smallpox during the Revolutionary War, and it's a fascinating read if you ever get a chance to read Ooh, that it. That does sound good. I'll that'll be yeah. on my list. Yes. Yeah, it's a really good one. <laughs> so let's talk about what was going on in Germany in 1923. Okay. Now Hitler had been in the First World War, and he had yeah. he'd become a like a, it. I can't remember the exact title in German, but it's like a private, the highest level of private that you can get. And he also almost like a like a PSC here in America. Kinda, yeah. And okay. that, but he also won the Iron Cross. So oh. whatever he was doing in there got him some recognition. Okay. And well, don't most dictators start out as war heroes? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> well, except for one notable exception in recent history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I did too. <laughs> so, anyways, well. he he was fighting as a German in that war even though he was an Austrian citizen. And he thought the Treaty of Versailles was a stab in the back to Germany because the Treaty of Versailles basically stripped Germany of 
everything that it could possibly use to make war and, and was actually punitive and financially and physically fun- punished people from Germany. Right. It was almost like a reparations and a slap on the wrist at the same time. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so he he remained in Munich in the army after the war. And um, while he was there, he, he participated in various national thinking courses, which I'm I'm assuming because they were organized by the Education and Propaganda Department of the Army was basically propaganda, nationalistic propaganda. Yeah, it's like a how to be a nationalist class 101. Right. You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. So he not, became... Not, not too far different from American schools, but we'll gloss <laughs> over that for now. <laughs> so anyway, he became an agent and infiltrated a socialist he infiltrated the Deutsche, I'm sorry, Deutsche Arbeiterpartei. Deutsche okay. Arbeiterpartei. Um, he joined them in 1919, uh, and that was the like the precursor to the National Socialist, the Nazi Party. Okay, now this now okay this this one I have a thinking point. Their idea of socialist is not the same idea of what socialism actually is, mm-hmm. right? Okay, so because it's not means of production controlled by the worker, it's something completely different in the German government at this time. Right. I believe okay. that it was more of a patriotic system where Germans were, they built up, built them up as being smarter and prettier and harder working. Like when they... When they say socialist, they mean a betterment of society, not what not what the modern definition of socialism is. Because I know a lot of people try to say, well, Nazis were socialists. And it's like, no, that is not what they were. Not in the modern definition. Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> well, he became a spy in this party. But then, okay. then he realized that he started agreeing with them. And so they pretty much turned him. He, uh, and he was so involved in it, he actually rose to the top post in the in the system, in the uh, party. Okay. Party. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so, so he went from being a spy to being the, like the David Duke of, of the place. Yeah. And there was a, there was a lot of political chaos in the atmosphere of post-war Munich as well. So the organization officially agreed to make him the leader of the Kampfbund, which was the the Bavarian Patriotic Association's all he was like the section leader after that. Or the okay. so there was more than one organization under him. And that extended to about fifteen thousand Sturmabteilungs, which is storm detachments, which is one of the precursors of Hitler's dangerous Armed personal armed forces, and yeah, it's a precursor to the SS. Is basically what it is, right? Right to the yeah, okay. to the stormtroopers. Okay, Thailand to yeah. Mm. So let me go back. Okay, I haven't forgotten anything. So, anyways, there was all this political stuff going on, and the Bavarian prime minister. The, let's see, following. <laughs> All right, I'll go back to this. On the 26th of December, September in 1923, there was a big political upheaval with political violence rioting, and the Bavarian minister declared the state of an emergency. 
And so he appointed a state commissioner with dictatorial powers to govern Barbaria. Okay, so basically like a martial law type situation. Right. Okay. Um, he and Colonel Hans Ritter von Seisser and Otto von Lasso formed a ruling triumvirate. Hitler announced that he would hold 14 mass meetings beginning on 27 September 1923. They were afraid of um, the potential disruption of that, and his and the car's first action was to ban the announced meetings. So Hitler had pressure to act. He was either going to defy them or he was going to subjugate to them. It's, okay. That's basically what it's set up. So... The Nazis uh, felt like they had to march on Berlin and seize power, or their followers would turn to the communists. Okay. So, so Hitler enlisted the help of World War General Erich Ludendorff, who you may or may not have heard of. He's kind of famous in war movies, I know. In an attempt to gain support of Carr and his triumvirate, however, Carr had his own plan with Seisser and Lasso to install a nationalist dictatorship without Hitler. So Hitler was high up enough to where they were concerned about him becoming the leader of the country. Right, and there were people actively trying from being the leader. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So they had um, they had something called a push putsch, which is a P U T S H S C H. I can't even talk today. P U T S C H. It's a German word that means um, like upheaval, riot. Uh, no, it means, yeah. it means coup. It means a violent takeover of the government. Yeah, or I guess you could view it as a push to push out the government to move in your own. Well, too. actually, that's that's part of the looking at the German word and knowing a little bit German. That's probably push is another form of that word, an, an Americanized or English form of that word. So okay. he was inspired by some writers, including Mustafa Ataturk who uh, was involved in some upheaval in Anatolia, and Benito Mussolini, who had a hard time Rome that was successful. Oh, Hitler was like a huge fan of Mussolini. Oh, yeah. (laughs) He even said on his 50th birthday to a delegation of Turkish politicians, Ataturk was a teacher, Mussolini was his first, and I was his second student. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) That's that's not disconcerting at all. (laughs) So from the 22nd to the 29th of October in 1922, Hitler and his associates planned to use Munich as a base for the march against the Weimar Republic, which uh-huh. was Germany's government at the time. Yeah. Um, but the circumstances were different from those in Italy. Hitler realized that Carr wanted to control him and wasn't ready to act against the government in Berlin. He wanted to have a critical moment that he could seize for a successful, popular agitation and support. So he wanted to start something that started among the people, not as a direct attack on the government. Yeah, he was a populist. Right. Like some people. Some people (laughs) know and try not to remember. So what he did was he took a large detachment of his SA, his Stormabteilung people, and marched on the Burgerbrau Keller, which is where Carr was making a speech in front of 3,000 people. And that, that was Pretty, that was pretty pushy. <laughs> pushy yeah. Pushy. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> what he did basically was this, this 
man Carr, who was trying to subjugate him, he was making he was making a speech in a in a beer hall, a German beer hall, which can seat like twelve hundred people. Yeah, they were huge. They were gigantic. They took up blocks, and people yeah. would go there and they drink and they talk about politics or whatever, women, beer, whatever they talked about. Yeah, it, it, it's almost like those American Legion halls, basically. Yeah, like <laughs> <laughs> that's a good that's a good example. Yeah, so an eyewitness said, I cannot remember in my entire life such a change in attitude of a crowd in a few minutes, almost a few seconds. Hitler had turned them inside out as one turns a glove inside out with a few sentences. It was almost oh, something was of hocus pocus or magic. Yeah, he he was a very well-spoken person, and he knew exactly what buttons to push with crowds of people. He did. So he went That's in. How... He went in, and he had about he had about ten thousand of his people surround the beer hall, and then mm-hmm. went in and started making a speech where Carr had been trying to talk. Oh, so he literally like so the guy that was trying to push him out, he pushed him out by just kind of taking over his speech and making sure no one was interfering. That's right. He physically went in there and they were threatened because they were surrounded by the Hitler sympathetic storm of tunneling and other troops. And, and so that was, yeah. So he, he really did. And it was, and it was like magic. Those people just turned around and went, went from being car listeners to being Hitler fight, you know, Hitler. Right. Right. So they said the Hitler stated the action wasn't directed at the police or the Reichswehr, but against the Berlin Jew government and the November criminal trials of 1918. So even though he was taking over, trying to take over the German government, he was blaming it on the Jews. Oh, I'm not trying right. to take you over. I'm trying to get the Jews out of politics. Well, that's, that's still a thing. Like, they, you have these these people still today with these conspiracy theories that are very anti-Semitic, and they have this belief that this magical group of people have complete control of everything. Mm-hmm. And they're extremely anti-Semitic in these places. It's still a thing. It didn't go away. <laughs> no, so. it and, and the Jews have been have been picked out in many different societies. And, and in Germany, it started out with the Jews and the Gypsies. Yep. And yep. uh but but a lot of Jewish people they this was part of the eugenics. They had they would do uh-huh. they would do propaganda pictures of Jews with big noses and black hair. Well and, the 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 modern imagery of, of the devil or Satan takes place from those old Jewish propaganda you know, uh images. Like like not just in Germany but even before that. In the Renaissance, like the big nose and the horns and the tail, that was all Jewish myths. You know that mm-hmm. we're now it's become you know it, it's it's just become synonymous with evil. Yeah. So it was not that hard to make those propagandas because you already have the resources there. Yeah. So yeah, there was already an archetype of the evil uh-huh. money grubbing Jew person. Uh-huh. Uh, so yeah, and that's literally that's something I never understand why people always seem to pick out Jewish people because. The only thing I can think of is that they tend to be self-sufficient and, and a cl- more closed society. And when they help each but other... But they have to be because of how people treat them, too. So it's kind of like this cycle. 
Right. You know, and I don't blame them at all. I mean, no. it's just one of those groups of people that have always been against. And I, that's something interesting that I would like to look into is why that is. Mm-hmm. You know, so. well, I think that the, their ability to, to succeed by helping each other makes makes a makes a situation where there's there's Jews and there's others, and the right. others are jealous of what's going on in the Jewish community, maybe, and. So well, there's, there's also this human, there's this human fear of, or, or this human uh, trait of fearing what you don't understand as well. So, right. uh, and then there's, it's, yeah, it's, <laughs> then there's a whole other bunch of stuff that we are going to go into. yeah. But anyway, so as a side note, there was a hatter who was in this, a hatter like he made hats. He was a milliner. Um, yeah. He was shot in the abdomen and it killed him. And when he died, he fell on the Nazi flag that somebody else was holding who had been shot and fallen on the flag. And so there was blood on the flag. It was blood-soaked flag. And it actually Ah. became a Nazi relic, like a holy item that they had. And it was called Blutfana, which Blut is blood in German. So, Yeah, the blood flag, basically. Right, exactly. And uh, another interesting side note that 9-11, their Neunte Elfstel, which is German for the 9th of 11th, it became one of the most important dates on the Nazi calendar, especially following the seizure of power in 1933. Annually, uh, until the fall of Germany, the putsch would be commemorated nationwide and major events taking place, with major events taking place in Munich. So they celebrated this putsch, and the, and the putsch, they, they arrested Hitler. And he went to prison. He had a sympathetic judge, so he didn't go to prison for long. I think he was in there for like three years. And while he was there, he wrote Mein Kampf, which is his statement book. Mein Kampf is yeah. German for my struggle. And uh-huh. uh, and he laid out. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, just, I'm just flabbergasted. That... I'm sorry. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, that laid out all of his things that he had been thinking and, and planning. Uh-huh. Um, yep. I've never read it and really don't care to because I don't want I'm, to. I'm never going to. I know enough about it to not want to. So. Yeah, I don't want to know. I don't want to know anything because that's not the way I think. I, don't think. I hope. Yeah. That's not the way I think. I don't think. So I. Yeah. yeah. So let's talk about Kristallnacht. The, okay. The Nazis were trying to get the Jews out of Germany. Uh-huh. Um. There was, they alienated, the propaganda alienated like a half a million Jews in Germany. But the, those half a million Jews only were like 0.86% of the entire population. So they were okay. extremely small portion of the population, but they had a lot of heat on them from the government. And the Nazis propaganda people were brilliant. They were, they did such a good job that that turned the entire country kind of crazy. Uh-huh. Uh it's it's like having a really having a advertising whiz nowadays that can sell And and the the thing is is like, you know, it wasn't just Germany at this time. The United States had a lot of strong anti Semitism at this time and a lot mm-hmm. of Europe had a lot of strong anti Semitism at this time as well. Yeah, and I think that was part of the post war issue because there was um the, they blamed the Jews for the Germany's defeat in the First World War. And in the 1920s, they had um, a couple of economic disasters. The ni- in 1920, there was a hyperinflation of the German Deutschmark, 
And the Deutschmark became worth so little that people were papering their walls and filling cracks to keep out the cold with Deutschmark. Yeah, they were burning it, too, for fire, too. Right. <laughs> so it was, it was worthless. Inflation was up so high that you had to have, you know, it was totally worthless to have that money. And that's what they did with it. Um, yeah. Also, then, America, again, the Wall Street crash caused a Great Depression that went around the world. Right, and and like um, because of, like people were blaming banks and stuff, you know, which they were partly to blame, but you know, because of the anti-Semitism, you know, they were like, the you know, Jewish one banks, and that <laughs> that's when it got really bad in America for Jewish people too. Right. Yeah. So, so yeah, because they you can still hear the white supremacists talking about the the Rothschilds and the banking families and the Jews, yeah, running the world in a secret cabal. Yeah. So, in 1933, the German government enacted a series of anti-Jewish laws that restricted the rights of German Jews to earn a living, or enjoy full citizenship, or to get an education. Uh Um, There was a law for the restoration of professional civil service that forbade Jews to work in civil service, so they couldn't work for the government anymore. And then, in 1935, the Nuremberg Laws stripped German Jews of their citizenship and prohibited them from marrying non-Jewish Germans. So that's the eugenics right there? Yes. Part of it. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) So some some historians believe the Nazi government had been contemplating an outbreak of violence against the Jews and were waiting for the appropriate provocation. So they're saying, when something comes up, we're going to blame them and we're going to punish them. Right, it's kind of like um, setting the stage, and then when someone falls into this trap, you're like, you did it. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) So, (laughs) German historians state that a major motive for the pogrom was the desire of the the Nazi party, the NSDAP, to seize Jewish businesses and property. Germans made it clear that Jewish people were not welcome, but their stuff was. Right, like... Well, you're not welcome, but all the wealth and anything you've accumulated is now ours. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in 1938, Poland, because they, Germany was pushing Jews out and they were going into Poland. And Poland said that they would renounce citizenship rights of Polish Jews living abroad for at least five years after the end of October. That would make them stateless. So all these Polish Jews started running to Poland, basically. Um, more than 12,000 Polish Jews were expelled from Germany on the 28th of October uh, on Hitler's orders. They were ordered to leave their homes on a, on a single night and were only allowed one suitcase per person that they could carry their belongings. And while the Jews were being taken away, their m- remaining possessions and houses were seized as loot by the Nazis and by their neighbors. Yeah. So the entire society had been turned against them. and they they were happily celebrating by stealing their stuff when they left. Okay. So so basically, um and, and I did I did a little bit of my own research on this. So uh when Poland said it's gonna renounce their citizenship, so these, these Polish Jews were living in Germany. Mm-hmm. And because of the political atmosphere in Germany at this time, they weren't welcome there either. So you have this mass of Polish Jews that are caught between both countries with nowhere to go. So you really have a refugee crisis as well. Mm-hmm. On top of not having anything you own. You know, so it's like you, you literally have 
thousands of people with nowhere to go. And like, if you're, you're kind of seeing the same thing right now with Syria and parts mm-hmm. of Africa. Too. That's right. Yeah. The, and, yeah. History just seems to repeat itself over and over. No, I realize. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm not trying to be pessimistic here, but I mean, it's just, it's too common. It's yeah. Too common. You can look around and, and see it. It's right there. So, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> so, the actual event that set off the violence of Kristallnacht, I'm sorry, of the November pogrom, was when those Jewish people were sent to Poland with this one suitcase. Um, there was a family called Grinspan, I believe is how you pronounce it. Um, they were Polish Jews, and they'd come to Germany in 1911, and they got the, you need to take one suitcase and hit the road thing. Uh-huh. So their 17-year-old son was living with his uncle in Paris at the time. His name was Herschel. He got a postcard from his sister from the Polish border that described how the family was treated, the expulsion that they had. She said, no one told us what was up, but we realized what, this was going to be the end. And we don't have any money. We, don't, we haven't a penny. Could you send us something? And that yeah. made Herschel extremely angry. Right, because, I mean, one can only imagine what it's like to literally have nowhere to go, and it's way too far to walk to get out of these countries. Yes, definitely. <laughs> so he was he was so incensed that his family had been kicked out like that. He okay. uh, on, on November 7th, he purchased a revolver and a box of bullets, which <laughs> any 13-year-old can do here now. Apparently. Um, <laughs> he went to the German embassy and asked to see an embassy official because he was going to take it out on a German guy. And after he was taken to the office of Ernst von Roth, a low-level official, Grinspan fired five bullets into von Roth, two of which hit him in the abdomen. Um, so Grinspan didn't make any attempt to escape the French police, and he confessed to the shooting. He said, I, I did it. Right. He yeah. had it coming, you know. In his pocket, he had a postcard with a message to his parents. It says, may God forgive me. I must protest so the whole world hears my protest, and that I will do. And Right, because the only option to them at the time, I mean, I hate to say it because I'm not a violent person. I'm very passive, but, mm-hmm. I mean, when, when you're left with no other recourse, violence is the only thing heard because that's, that's what's being used against them, you know. Exactly. So, so the very next day, the Germans retaliated. They barred Jewish children from German schools and state elementary schools. They indefinitely suspended Jewish cultural activities, and they put uh-huh. a halt to the publication of Jewish newspapers and magazines, including three national German Jewish newspapers. Uh-huh. On the ninth is when von Rath died from his wounds. So he, I think he lived for two or three days before he died. Yeah, gut wounds were not very well treated back then. Right. Hitler heard about the event, heard about it, while he was celebrating the anniversary of the beer house push. So they were having a big celebration for when he tried to do his coup, and he was supposed to speak, and he just got up and left. He didn't make his speech. So Joseph Goebbels, who was, uh, I think he was the Minister of Propaganda, he, yeah. he delivered a speech in his place, and he said, the Fuhrer has decided that demonstrations should not be prepared or organized by the party, but insofar as they erupt spontaneously, they're not to be hampered. And it was a clear signal to the party leaders to say, 
we're not we're not going to tell you to get up and have a riot and and attack the no. but that sounds super similar to what happened recently. Yeah. But if you do, we're not going to stand in your way. Exactly. Yep, yeah, that sounds very familiar. Mm-hmm. So on the 10th of November, Reinhardt Heydrich sends out an urgent secret tele- telegram to the Seeker Heights Polizei, the security police, and the Sturmabteilung, who were Hitler's um, storm detachment, the precursor to the SS, uh, with instructions for the riot. He said, guidelines for the protection of foreigners and non-Jewish businesses and property. The police were instructed not to interfere with the riots unless the guidelines were violated. So unless they went after something that didn't belong to somebody who was Jewish, then it was fine. They could uh-huh. let them do it. Uh, the police also instructed to seize Jewish archives from the synagogues and community offices and to arrest and detain healthy male Jews who are not too old. That's a direct quote. For eventual transfer to labor, to the labor camps, the concentration camps. Oh. So when they're seizing these archives, is this just like family lineages so they can track people down, or is this like actual cultural documentation? Or it was, I believe that a lot of it was um, the synagogue records, which would tell people who was Jewish and who was, you know, who was Jewish. Okay. So I think a lot of it was that. Plus, you know, any documents about ownership or anything that they could find, they just took them. Okay. I'm sorry, I'm just getting more disgusted the more I hear about this. I know. It's really not a good thing. So anyway, so the healthy male Jews were being, and I read, I listened to some people who were there and talked about it. One of them said his his grandfather went out and put on his First World War medal because they were trying to take his dad, the the guy with the medal, his son. And Uh he went out there and he says, i I fought for you. You can't do this to us. And they knocked him down. And then they took Yeah, this, that, that's kind of what's happening now, too. Like, you see a lot of veterans being citizenship, even though they fought for this country, and they're still treated like crap because they're not white and they're not natural-born citizens. And it's honestly... <laughs> it's just, I know. It's, just, it's so gross how... How history is just constantly repeating itself, and it's not the good parts; those are the bad parts. Well, and, and nobody seems to learn anything from it. That's one of the reasons Ever. I like to do these. It's because you know you're seeing all this stuff happen. It's happened before, and this was the outcome. Right. So you know, so the SA and the Hitler Youth. Now we're talking about the little brown-shirted um, yeah, like Boy Scout boys. Children, yeah. Yes. They shattered the window windows and looted about 7,500 Jewish stores and businesses, which is why they called it Crystal Night, Crystal Knocked, Crystal Night, Broken Glass. Yeah, because the broken glass looks like crystals on the ground. Mm-hmm. Jewish yeah. homes were ransacked all through Germany. So they didn't just attack the businesses. They went into people's homes. Yeah. And although violence against Jews had not been explicitly condoned by the authorities, there were cases of Jews being beaten or assaulted. And I'm sure they did nothing to stop it, so. No, no. Now, it wasn't in their plan to do that, in theory, but uh, they didn't stop it when it happened. Said rioters destroyed 267 synagogues throughout Germany, Austria, and the Sudetenland, which was part, I think it's part of Czechoslovakia, maybe? I can't uh-huh. um, I'm sorry, there's a, there's a plane going overhead. Can you hear it? 
slightly. It's okay. Oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it's sorry. Okay. <laughs> if you want to repeat that part, we can start over. All right. Well, the rioters destroyed two six hundred and I'm sorry, two hundred sixty seven synagogues throughout Germany, Austria, and the Sudetenland, which is on the south side of Germany. Um, now I went I went to school here in America. So where is Sudetenland? Sudetenland is it's south. It's the area south of Germany that now belongs to I can't remember what's south of Germany, but it's like Slovakia. So it used to be part of Germany until I'm guessing after this. Right. Okay. So yeah. So following the violence, police departments recorded a large number of suicides and rapes, which is another yeah. one of those things that fire yep. and rape. I mean, that's what people do to, to take over other people. Is they burn everything and they rape the women. Yeah, it's conquering a culture, yep. Well, and not only that, it's it's spreading that superior race. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's true. Because, I mean, you you got to think, like, because... Um, I'm sorry, but we we as a country have also committed genocide against our native peoples, our indigenous peoples, and mm-hmm. part of that was burning down their villages and raping their women as well, and then taking their children and assimilating them into our culture and negating completely their past culture. So we've done this. Yeah, oh, yeah. This is not something new to the United States. No, no, exactly. Like I said, all those good ideas start in the U.S. Uh-huh. Uh, so they arrested 30,000 Jewish men. Uh, and incarcerated them in, in Dachau, Buchenwald, and Stockenhausen, which were yep. three of the concentration camps. Yep. The original reports that came out of Germany was there was 90 Jewish men murdered. Um, that's, that's way too low. <laughs> I'm yeah. sorry. No, they estimate it's up to, it, it could be up to like 400. And then after that, it was estimated that 638 deaths were caused by suicides after the fact. Okay, but okay. here's my question. One, don't blame them, not at all, no. considering the situation. But two, how many of those were documented as suicides that were actually murders? Yeah, yeah. You, you know? I don't know. I would have to actually look at the documents, and I don't have access to them. But No, um, no I don't think anybody does, really, <laughs> unless you're in the field, you know. That's right. So, so um Anyways, the synagogues, and if there's a map on one of the sites that I looked this up on, and there's the synagogues that were destroyed were dotted all over Germany. It looked like it had the measles. There were so many of them. Yeah. Um, so the synagogues, they, they were centuries old, some of them, and they, they took a tremendous amount of violence and vandalism with the tactics mm-hmm. that the stormtroopers practiced. And on other sacred sites... They were approaching the ghoulish, was uh, was a quote from United States Council in Leipzig. They went. Oh, wait, I'm sorry to interrupt, but um, I also read uh, there is another book. I'll, I'll find the title before we're done here, but it's literally um, in the historical fiction account, but it's taken from documentation at the time about the American consulate in Germany while Hitler's taking power. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll have, to, I think it's called In the Garden of Beasts, but I'll double check to make sure that that's correct. But it's a very good book. Okay. So that's number two. So, yeah. Anyway. So anyways, they went in and they, they, they uprooted the tombstones and dug up people out of their graves. Uh, they lit fires, prayer books, scrolls, artwork, philosophy texts. They were all thrown in the fires. Book burning is another big, a big indicator of upcoming socialism. No, not fascism. Fascism, yes. 
<laughs> so, but because uh, um, like what they call book banding, a lot of times it's like modern day book burning as mm-hmm. well. Like we in American schools, we don't have a lot of access to some of these more historically accurate books because it looks makes us look bad, right? So, you know, and like like um. I can guarantee you, you know, with, with today's political climate, if a student was curious and wanted to read anything um, regarding Arabic history or culture or anything like the Quran, they would probably not be allowed to in school, if we're being completely honest. Mm-hmm. So. Also, I recently heard on the news that, there's, that there, the schools are fighting putting in the actual history of um, African Americans in this country as well. They're, really? they're, quote, whitewashing it. And, yeah, um, yeah and, the, and the schools are like, no, we're not going to teach that. Wow. Okay. Well, I mean, good for the schools for not wanting to teach a whitewashed history. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think, too, like, with what we know about schools and how we teach history, I think it's also on the parents to, like, step up and talk to their elected leaders about, like, hey, this is not okay. And you can also find ways to teach your own children about this, too, if the school's not going to do it, you Mm -hmm. know? Yeah, and that's, well, that's something I've always tried to do with my kids and is that, Uh you know, if they ask me something, I say, I don't know, let's go look it up. Well, it's like my, my child, she's 11, she's in fifth grade. They're just now learning early American history and they were they had a section on slavery mm-hmm. and my daughter decided to come home and this wasn't I mean she's being taught this in school mind you she said well mom slavery was bad but not all the slaveholders were bad and I'm like no <laughs> it's not no they owned slaves they were bad people <laughs> you know mm-hmm. like this, this is not okay and so we had a long talk like on our own as mom and daughter about how you know, slavery was never a good thing, and it never helped anybody. Mm-hmm. And anyone who partook in the system was part of the system and inherently bad in that way. Right. You know. Yeah. So. And, and granted, what they're what they're saying in the school is, well, this was their way of life, so of course they did it that way. But that didn't yeah. make it right, and no. it didn't make them compliant. No, because you had just as many people that were against slavery at the time as well that never owned slaves. Mm-hmm. So you can't say that. That's right. I, whatever <laughs> but you know it, it, it's just frustrating because people are like well it's of the time and it's like no people are people are capable of change and growth in their lifetime and i'm sorry but you know when you have people willingly uh having forced labor for their own economic gain then they're part of a system that is inherently bad right you know yeah that's right so, yeah know. it's a it's a it's a hard thing to comprehend, especially if you're getting conflicting information from the Yeah, and then, I, of course, you know, me being an adult, I'm like, well, and that's why we also have the 14th Amendment. <laughs> you know, that's right. Or the 13th, the 13th Amendment, I think, is what it was, the, the forced prison labor. But I, she's a little too young to understand that completely, but, you know. <laughs> well, now, and let me get to that in just a second. I just want to do one more report about what they saw in Germany. Oh, okay, it okay. says, I've seen several anti-Jewish outbreaks in Germany during the last five years, but never anything as nauseating as this. Racial hatred and hysteria seem to have taken complete hold of otherwise decent people. I saw fashionably dressed women clapping their hands and screaming with glee, while respectable ah. middle-class mothers held up their babies to see the fun. 
Ew. Mm-hmm. That's so gross. <laughs> that, oh, my God. Okay, so um, I, t- I took a, an honors Texas history class when I was in college, and my term paper for that class was on lynchings in America. Mm-hmm. Very much the same feel. Right. Very much the same feel. Yeah. This- Disgusting. I've seen pictures of lynchings where people are just standing around, like, you know, chatting, Posing with the court, you know, everything. It's it's disgusting. It's absolutely ghoulish behavior. Mm-hmm. Well, now, on that, slavery is, is abolished except for people who are in prison. Mm-hmm. I heard someone speaking here recently about um, the fact that that was used by the police to reinstate slavery. And that's why now... Yeah. The police will will say you're resisting arrest. Well, resisting arrest was like an imaginary imaginary thing that you know, up to the judgment of the police. And what they would do is they'd use it to arrest black people, put them in prison, so that they could get them to work for free, so that yeah. they could be slaves again. Policing has its roots in slave patrols. Mm-hmm. Um, there's okay, so I, I, I hate to do this, but I'm gonna I'm gonna. There's another podcast that I do listen to called Behind the Bastards, and mm-hmm. It is one of the most enlightening podcasts as far as American history goes. And he literally has like a four or five part series on the history of policing, which goes over this. Mm-hmm. And it's actually super fascinating. And I just listened to one last night. It's called about excited delirium and how it's like a made up thing by police to be able to like basically excuse them from killing people. Yeah. You know, <laughs> And it's, I know. it's disgusting. But if you <laughs> if you go back to the 14th Amendment, the 14th uh-huh. Amendment, I believe, is the one that protects you from, you know, like capital punishment without a trial. Yeah. And and killing somebody for passing a counterfeit 20, maybe, or or for holding a cell phone in their backyard. Uh-huh. Um, that's that's that deprives them of their civil rights of of being able to have a trial on a jury. And it's yeah, a time of their life. But going back to counterfeit 20s, um, that was the exact excuse Derek Chauvin had for holding him down with excited delirium, which is a made-up mm-hmm. thing. The only the only people that really, like doctors even are like, that's not a thing. And the only people, the only doctors that you will find supporting that are mm-hmm. paid by people that, create tasers and different things for policing mm-hmm. <laughs> like action um and then you have uh you know but anyway back to the for, the for, uh, the 13th amendment about the prison and mm-hmm. the slave labor so with with lynch like with with policing it's like um and this kind of goes back to concentration camps too so like our economy is literally built on free labor, right? Like mm-hmm. um, forced labor with pay. And um, what do you call it? Uh, with with the German economy at the time, because they were so broke, I can kind of see how they got that idea from us because we were using that at the time, mm-hmm. the, the forced prison labor. And I'm, I'm pretty certain I've read somewhere where Hitler really looked at how we handled the native problem and we handled uh, our our eugenics problems mm-hmm. through forced labor and killing and genocide, and you know, and I, I'm pretty certain we gave Hitler a lot of his ideas. We we did. <laughs> so <Yep. laughs> eugenics was one of them for sure, and uh-huh. he he squeezed that one down to the last drop. 
Oh, I'm sure. I mean, and and you, you got to think about it now, like modern day racism is based in eugenics because even though it's a you know it's a pseudoscience and it's morally reprehensible, like we still we still have stereotypes and racist beliefs that are based in that today. Mm-hmm. You know, so. Well, one of the interesting things that happened after Kristallnacht Mm -hmm. was that there was, there was, uh, let me go through this and then I'll hit on that. Um, Hermann Goering, he was afraid German insurance companies would, uh, not Jewish owned businesses would have to bear the cost of the damages. He didn't want the German insurance companies to have to pay for what they did. Uh, The German government made an immediate pronouncement that the Jews in, in quotation marks, themselves were to blame for the pogrom. It was their own fault. They started it. Yeah, and then that kind of takes the the, the brunt of the impact off of the insurance companies because if they caused it themselves, then there's nothing you can do. Right. They imposed yeah. the fine of one billion Reichsmark, which replaced the Deutschmark. Um, uh-huh. It was about $400 million at 1938 rate on the German Jewish community. The Reich wow. government confiscated all the insurance payouts to the Jews. They said, that's, your, that's not your money, that's our money. If their businesses or homes were looted or destroyed, leaving the Jewish owners personally responsible for all the repairs. And the next morning, the Nazi regime ordered the police to arrest about 30,000 German Jewish men. These men had not committed a crime, and they arrested them simply because they were Jewish. But it was to send them to the labor camps, which at the time were labor camps. They weren't death camps. Right. No, they were labor camps because they helped, um, they helped basically, uh, one, it gave them a spot to put the Jewish men and keep them under control. But two, it also helped them with preparing for the upcoming war that they were about to embark on. And they knew this. Well, I think it was Goering who also, see, when all that glass got broken, um, the only way they could replace it was to go to Belgium and buy glass because Germany didn't have enough glass production to do that. And that really irked them <laughs> that that money was not going to stay in Germany. Yeah. I, I totally understand that, but maybe you shouldn't have broken all the windows. Exactly. But, uh, you know. Let's just place the blame. It couldn't possibly be our fault we're in this situation. Right. <laughs> Gee, somebody burned down your house while I stood there and watched and didn't turn on my host? No, that's not, that's your fault. Yep. So the Nazi authorities did release some of those men if the families could prove they had plans to leave Germany and then other people died in those camps. Yeah. So, Chris and I, um Call it the November pogrom out of uh, respect for the victims. It changed the nature of Nazi persecution of Jews from economic, political, and social to physical with beatings and jail time, incarcerations, and murder. (laughs) It's often referred to as the beginning of the Holocaust, which, yeah. Which, I mean, totally makes sense because, I mean... Like, the Holocaust or the Final Solution, ultimately their goal was to exterminate Jews, right? So mm-hmm. this was the beginning because they're literally, they're culturally exterminating them at this point, not physically. So, I mean, this, this kind of turned the tide into the physical, like you just said. But, I mean, I could totally see 
you know, it it is rightfully the beginning of the Holocaust because this is their, they're being left broke. They're being left homeless. Mm -hmm. They're losing connections to their families. All the men are being taken. So there's no way they could, you know, like you're breaking up families, which in its own is a form of genocide. Like what's happening on the border. Well, Um, the other thing is that when they took those men, they left those women who didn't have jobs with their children with, uh-huh. with no way to feed them. Um, another thing that happened was when all those half a million Jewish people went to Poland in 1939, Hitler invaded Poland. Yep. And then they had the, the Polish ghettos there. And yep. an interesting detail is there was a, you could do your business within the ghetto, but you couldn't go outside. And, it, and the outside or the area where the gates were it was called the pale. And so if you were going to go someplace too far that you shouldn't be going, you were going beyond the pale. Beyond the pale. Yep. Yeah. So that's like a common term we use and we don't even, I didn't realize that that's where it came from. Mm-hmm. Wow. Okay. I'll have to watch how I use that, that term now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh man. <laughs> this, yeah. It's rough. Uh, so in this view, it's described not only as a pogrom, but a critical stage within the process where each step towards extermination becomes a seed for the next one, which is why we started with the eugenics. Yeah, no, because there's a very traceable line here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and Hitler gave a green light for Kristallnacht. He didn't he didn't have to say anything. He just got up and walked out. And then that's what we politely refer to now as dog whistling. Exactly. And that's exactly yeah. what he did. Yeah. Yep. Uh, so and it, and it made clear that he was obviously trying to get rid of all the Jews in Germany. Yeah, I mean it, it was very obvious at that point. But you know, and and part of the reason he was able to do this and not face international backlash was because of the anti-Semitism from all over. Mm-hmm. You know, because like everyone else wanted to do it, Hitler was just the one to do it. And the only time it became an issue in a humanitarian crisis was after World War II, when we realized what was actually going on towards the end. Right. You know. So. And this program, it, it signaled the change from just getting them out of the country to getting rid of them, period. Yeah, exterminating them. Mm-hmm. And so um, that was, it was the first of the large-scale and organized violence against Jews in Germany. And, yeah. they, and, and their primary objective before that had been to eject them from Germany, but leave their wealth behind. Right. And because and this is what bothers me is it's like okay you're angry at them for being self self sufficient when your country is struggling okay I completely mm-hmm. understand that everybody is capable of envy or resentment I get it it's a natural human thing to resent something when you're struggling mm-hmm. okay but you force them into that situation for them to become self reliant and you've created the problem that you've made up mm-hmm. and, and then it's like then. This happens, and this is what scares me about the United States right now, because we're we're one incident one, away. We're one incident yeah. away from having something huge like this happen. Right, exactly. And that's what and, happened with George Floyd uh-huh. last summer. It it it, it sparked a powder keg. And and uh, the Capitol insurrection was mm-hmm. a taste of what could possibly happen. Yes. That was terrifying. I remember watching that live on the news yeah. when it was going on. And that was Hitler got up and he left and he 
let his other people do the talking and telling them what they could do, and then they set him loose. Yep. And that's just exactly what Hitler did with this. Yep. So finally, in the words of Max Ryan, who's a historian, he said, Kristallnacht came and everything changed. Yep. And that, that is the incendiary point for um, the mass genocide that happened in Germany and surrounding countries. Mm-hmm. And it's still happening today in countries. Yes, it is. Um, now, I don't pretend to know anything about it because I'm not that worldly. But, like, what's <laughs> happening in Israel and Palestine right now, like, they're having similar issues. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the Middle East is having similar issues. Uh, like, when Africa is as well. I mean, everybody is really. And we're having similar issues with our internet that are coming here. Now, granted, some of it's not to the degree as other countries, but it's not going to take much to get to that point. Well, a lot of the problem that's happening at our southern border has uh-huh. to do with the fact with climate change. In yeah. um, Argentina, there's people coming from Argentina that couldn't grow crops. They didn't have anything to eat. Yep. It was too hot. Yep. And, and um, you have places in Mexico, because of these hurricanes, they're just completely devastated. Mm-hmm. Oh. And it's just going to get worse. Yes. And, and so, yeah, there's there's a lot of different things behind all this. And drawing attention to the people being different is not the healthy way to deal with it. Because we saw what happened in World War II. Yep. That's exactly right. You know, like, we need to, as a country, like, we, you know, we like to pretend, like, you know, we need to, we're, we're a very individualist country, like, take care of our own, mm-hmm. especially since the last president, we've become very much like America first. But that's what, that was a big thing in, in World War II, is we stayed out of it because of that, and look at what happened. As a matter you of know, fact, there was a famous incident of a, of a boatload of Jewish refugees coming to the United States and us not letting them in. And we sent mm-hmm. them back, and they got killed. They died. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So maybe maybe it's time for us to learn from our past. Ha 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 ha. Yeah. Well, the other thing that you mentioned though is taking care of our own. Mm-hmm. They said that, but that's not what we do. Because no, that's not what we do. Because and that, and that that was that was going to be my point on that was like we we want to pretend like we're like this great country and we're amazing, but it's we we are not. I mean, don't get me wrong, like, like, as an American, you know, I accept that I live here. I accept that, you know, I'm a citizen of this country, and I don't agree with a lot of what we do as far as policy and how we treat people. Mm-hmm. But, you know, part part of what being an American is fighting to change and voting and paying attention to what our leaders are doing and what their voting history is. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and and... As far as change goes, we need to really take a hard look at what our values are and what we want to see our country be. And unfortunately, not a lot of people do that. But, um, you know, I know a lot of people that mostly vote party line, and that's Mm -hmm. not acceptable anymore. It's just not. Well, and and the other thing is people aren't likely to really become involved in it unless it affects them directly. Yep. And unfortunately, the people with the loudest voice aren't affected by any of this. So. Right. (laughs) <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> well, you know, here's here's what I see, and 
uh, talking about citizenship, I'm an American citizen, but I'm also an Irish citizen. I have a citizenship in Ireland. So mm-hmm. if I absolutely can't take it anymore, I'm going to Bel- I'm going to Cork or wherever. <laughs> nice. <laughs> going to Dublin. I don't know. Somewhere. But it's yeah, amazing. I mean, that's, like, technically, I could, I could apply for a work visa somewhere, but, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm in the boat, like, I financially could not do that, and mm-hmm. I don't think I'd want to, because, you know, the, like, I'm a white female in America, I do have somewhat of a voice here, mm-hmm. and I'm going to use that to affect change for what's morally right for people. No, well, that's good. You know, yep. so. Yep, I know. Yep. Well, the, the, the problem here right now is that, our population is getting ready to turn minority majority. We're uh-huh. going to have more people who are so-called minorities than we will have white people, and especially white males, because even white females aren't at the same level as white males. No, not at all, though. And I mean, I'm just saying, like, I'm I'm more I'm more privileged than most. Is what yeah. I think. The only person with privilege above me is a white male. Right. You know. Exactly. <laughs> But what like they're seeing, what they're seeing, scares them, because they're not going to be empowered if they're not the majority. I no, mean, not like, in our like system. Texas, Texas right now, we're in this huge uh, flux because we're turning purple, and mm-hmm. it's scaring everybody. <laughs> it is, <laughs> you know, and and, but, but, and and we have to deal with Ted Cruz, you know, Ted yeah. Cruz vacation Cruz. Everybody in Texas will have heard of him. 
that's true. But, I mean, he's made statements that I don't, like, in his presidential run, he made statements that I don't think he'll get elected in Texas. But that's just me. Yeah. But who knows? Because because of things that have happened, who knows? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it's it's honestly, like I said, the politics in Texas are changing, and it's become a, a coin flip at this, at this time. Well, I'll tell you something about Beto. I've talked to him several times. And I called him here sometime last year, and I said, the things that Congress is trying to do piecemeal, like send people money or get food out to them or medical assistance, you know, the things that they're arguing over are all things that FEMA does every single day. They provide provide rental assistance, food assistance, child care, you know, business they refer you to the small business administration. I mean, we do all these things. We distribute these funds out to people who the ones who need that and not the ones who don't. And, and so why aren't we using that system to deal with this crisis with, with mm-hmm. this epidemic? Yep. What do you say to that? He said, I don't know much about it, but I will check. And he did. And he called me back. Oh, well. <laughs> so, he listens. That's all. That's all. That story yeah, he does listen. Well, well, and, and and that I do respect about him, and he does. Like when he would go out and do his little um, campaign trail things, like he he did take the time to listen to people. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I mean, I just I don't know how well he'll do after that presidential run because he made because you know how Texas is, and he made statements about guns, and he made statements yeah. about other things that. Texas was just not going to get behind. No, and especially I heard him say that about the guns, and I was like, "Did you really just say that, you idiot?" Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) like look at the room. Like I think we need better gun control, but it's like you really got to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to take away all your guns to Texas. Yeah, no. Anyway, yeah, no. Sorry, we got off. I got off on a tangent. No, me too. Yeah. Well, you get me on Texas. Well, you did hear what. Um, uh, what's his name? The comedian from Minnesota, who was a senator. Oh, uh, no, I have. I don't think I have. Um, what the heck's his name? I don't know. It'll come to me. Anyways, he was a senator from Minnesota, and he was a comedian on Saturday Night Live. Uh-huh. And um, he said, "There's two kinds of people in the Senate. There's people who hate Ted Cruz, and there's Ted Cruz." <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, that, that's exactly right. And you Boehner, know. Boehner said pretty much the same thing at the end of his book. So. Yeah. No. <laughs> Anyways. Um, but, but, you know, after this last election cycle, I mean, it's really become a time, you know, going back to Crystal Mark, it becomes a time like, which side are you on? Yeah. Which side are you on? Because it's very obvious what this side wants, and it's very obvious what this side wants. And you have to choose to... You have to choose which side is the morally corrupt side and which side is the just side. Mm. And I hate to put it that way because there's nuance and everything, but well, it's become extremely obvious which side is which. Well, are you going to be the kind of person who holds up your baby to watch the fun of Jews getting beaten up and killed and their their houses being robbed? Or, or are you going to be people are black? Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> or are you going to be the kind of person that hides Anne Frank? Exactly. That's exactly what it's turning into, sadly. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and, and what kills me is 
you know, when when it comes down to it, as a country, we're going to suffer if we don't hurry up and try to mend what's happened. Mm-hmm. You know, we need to put it, we need to really get into perspective how we're viewing things, and we need to really look at what we want to be as a country, and that's just the end of it. I mean, yeah. that's well, what, really the look of We got a major setback over the last four years, I think. And the problem is that you that you look at it and you think, well, it's just a setback, but it's not because that setback happened because there are things going on in American society that caused that. And we well, need to address those before we can get back on track again. Exactly. And in my 32 years of life, I will say this too. I have never seen political division like I have the last four years. Neither. And I was never. down during the 60s. Yeah, and this is, I mean, this is like, if we can't, we're, in my honest opinion, we're headed toward a civil war if we can't get this fixed. Mm-hmm. I just think that's quite possible, yeah. Because looking at, like, from what I have learned in history and what I have, you know, seen in the news and everything, it's like, that's exactly where we're headed if we're not careful. Yeah. You know, and that's that's what that's what our last president talked about a civil war. He wanted a civil war. Oh, I know because it it would. It, I don't know. I, I'm just gonna say this, and then I'm gonna I'm gonna be done talking about it because I'll, <laughs> I'll keep going. Okay. But we we just we just really need to think about what we want as a country and what we want to be viewed as when when our great grandchildren are in class reading history books. If if. They're in class reading history books. Yes. But I agree with you. Well, I really appreciate, Lindsay, you you coming on here and uh, talking yeah. about this because I always like to have you as a as a co-host. Because I, I always, I love coming on. I, I wish I could come on more, but, you know, we just moved and we're out in the sticks now and I have no internet. And <laughs> so. So, so we apologize for the quality of this recording, how, whatever the quality yeah. is. So. Yes. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> I apologize. Please forgive me. Yeah, me too. <laughs> but no, um, so I wanted to give an update. I'm, I know uh, I haven't been on since Waco, but I got a new job, and I'm a 911 dispatcher now. I'm not going to say where I work, because um, <laughs> I work in a rural county. But, you work in a 911 center. Yes, that too. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, 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 I do work for 911, and I would love to come on for a history of 911, because I have some stories. Oh, yeah. So that's pretty cool. That's- that sounds great. I think that would be wonderful. We'll do that. Yeah, and, and um, one thing, too, uh, if we can do that, I would like to have a little segment where I can talk about what you need to do when you call 911 and what to do if you call 911 accidentally, because that's, that's a big thing. You bet. So. Yeah, because awesome. people need to know that. That's true. Yeah, and I would love to educate people because it would make my job 100 times easier. Sounds so. good to me. <laughs> sounds great. All right. I really appreciate it, Lindsay. Thank you so much. Thanks, Katie. Thank you for listening to Disaster Tales. You can find us on Podbean, Stitcher, Google Play, and iTunes. Our website is www.disastertales.com. Music by Stephanie Cerny. If you have a disaster tale to share, feel free to send it to us at kate at disastertales.com. We'd love to share your story with our listeners. Thanks again.
At some point in your journey through this life, you may find yourself in the midst of a panicking or crushing crowd. These situations can become so dangerous that you could be seriously injured or even die from trampling or asphyxiation. So let's look at some ways that you can help yourself remove yourself from that situation. First of all, pay attention to your surroundings. If you're going into a crowded area, look for exits and safe spaces where you could shelter in case something goes terribly wrong. Also, you can look for a high point if you're amidst the crowd, if you can climb above the crowd to save yourself. Move towards the outer edge of the crowd. It's probably going to be a lateral movement, not a straightforward movement, so just keep sidestepping towards the closest edge and try to get away. Shorten your arms. That helps keep you from being dragged around. Avoid narrow hallways and openings. Use sign language to communicate with other people because they probably won't be able to hear you. Identify possible exits from the point you are in the crowd. Also, if you've dropped something, leave it. It's not worth dying for. The main thing that you need to remember is don't stop. Try to keep moving, if not in the same direction as the crowd, slightly to the left or right so that you can find the edge and get away.